So representation matters in that way. As a black filmmaker, because Ryan Coogler is a black man, he was able to direct that and put his own influences as the characters onto that film, which matters. Because not to say that a white filmmaker couldn't do it, they just don't have the same experience to be able to lend that type of credibility to a film like that. So that definitely does matter when sometimes when it comes to these black films, like you can tell if anybody on the film was black or not based off of something mm-hmm. they didn't say, some of the clothes that they wear, hairstyles that they use, things like that. There are certain things that can tip your hand to who is actually working on this production. It's based off of, you know, there's some things that even with, because some back in the day, especially in the 90s, but it's still happening now when it comes to black hair in films, especially with black women, like if they did not know how to do their hair, they put headbands on black women characters. Welcome to Show Your Receipts, where we believe if you can see it, you can be it. Receipts are evidence or proof that something has occurred. Our guests are evidence that Black excellence is alive and well. They will be sharing their receipts on how they've been able to accomplish so much in their life. I'm your host, Tony Jackson. Let's get started. Welcome to Show Your Receipts, where we believe if you can see it, you can be it. I'm super excited to introduce our guest today. Mr. Robert Butler is an award-winning director from Detroit, Michigan. He released his first short film, Color of Life, in 2015, his second short, The Lottery, in 2018, and his first feature film, Life Ain't Like the Movies, in 2021. All of his projects have won several awards from Best Feature Film, Best Short Film, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Actor for Originals, and Best Actor for Original Screenplay. His films have been played in festivals that span from that span around the globe from Los Angeles, Italy, Australia, Spain, Toronto, and more. He's currently working on his second feature film, The Pack, starring Neo and Kim Whitley. And we have him here today. Welcome, welcome to show your receipts, Robert. Thank you, Tony. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. I am I've been definitely looking forward to this interview. Um, I've never interviewed a filmmaker before, so this is gonna wow. be uh very exciting. Um, And so let's dive right into it. Robert, they say that the income we earn is a representation of the value that we give. And so talk to me about the purpose of your filmmaking and and, and what's the value that that you're providing to your viewers? So the thing I like to do with my films, I like telling personal stories. I like telling stories that people can connect to, that they can earn from, they can grow from, that they can, you know, get something out of before they leave theater so if you leave something like if it made you laugh if it you know touched your heart if it reminded you of a loved one or anything like that then i feel like i done my job as a filmmaker because you got something for my seeing my film uh, my film life ain't like the movies it deals with a young socially awkward boy he has a great relationship with his grandfather one of the highest compliments i got is like he reminds me so much of my grandfather and i miss him so much you helped me it, it was like you know, it's great hearing things like that absolutely so the filmmaking process is, do you have to be a writer? How does that work? How do you become a filmmaker? Because, you know, we see people, you're, you're this movie maker. Did you like go to journalism school? Were you writing books first? Like, how did you become a person who makes films? Uh, honestly, it started when I was four years old. My parents put a camera in my hand and I ran around and started filming anything and everything I could and start and tried to tell a story from that. Uh, so basically from a very young age, my parents, my interest in movies so they took an interest in what i took the interest in they gave mm-hmm. me a camera it was a the original it was like a black and white camera camcorder that i would run around film things like you know 
my backyard, the family Christmas, things like that. And like yeah. the next day, I got like a color camera because technology had improved. And I continue running around. And then, then my parents found programs for me to get into at a young age that helped fuel that creativity that fueled my passion as a filmmaker at a very young age. So I didn't start off as a writer. That came later. But I definitely started off with a camera in my hand. That's amazing. That's amazing. And you are from Detroit. Shout out to Detroit. What high school did you go to? So I ended up going to Troy Athens High School because I had just moved back from Georgia to uh, Michigan before my freshman year of high school. So I went to Southfield Christian first for my freshman year. Then I ended up graduating at Troy Athens High School. That's awesome. That's awesome. Next question I have for you is talk to me about a typical day. Like what does a typical day look like for a filmmaker? Is it you're writing, you're writing, you're writing? Is it, you know, you're just getting inspired to get ideas? Are you sitting down with, are you soliciting potential actors and actresses? How does that whole process work? Because as a filmmaker, you're kind of like the conductor of an orchestra, right? Like you got all these different parts going on. Uh, so it depends on if I already have a script or a story idea already. So if I'm not starting from scratch from a story idea, once we have the idea, once we have the script done, that's when we start talking about you know, who do you want to play the the part? We start, you know, soliciting actors, producers, composers, all the different things we call like below the line, which are people who are not in front of the camera. And then you start building a crew, a crew who can take the vision of the script on the page and put it on the screen. So it's all about the process. There's a lot of work that gets done behind the scenes that nobody really sees from people like um, makeup and hair, makeup and hair, wardrobe, like the composing of a musical score, like the gaffers who do like the lighting and key grips and help with the lights, things like that. So everybody looks good. The director of photography or the EP helps orchestrates the shot so that the director can sit there and focus on actors and getting the performance they desire out of that. So it just depends on where you are in the process. It all starts with the story, all starts with the light. Absolutely. So I, I'm interested to get this question. What what I would love to know who you think you're, who are your favorite filmmakers. And what are some of your favorite movies of all time? Because I love, I'm a big movie buff as well. I love movies. So what do you, who, who, who do you like? Who are you inspired by? Super easy question, because this is the reason why I wanted to be a filmmaker in the first place. At the age mm. of four, I saw stars for the very first time. At the age of four. So I saw A New Hope. And it, like I said, I was four years old. I was over at my aunt and uncle's house. And they had it on. And I just sat down and I watched the whole thing. And I told my parents, like, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to do that. So Star Wars was a huge influence over me as a kid, still to this day. George Lucas, Spielberg, Christopher Nolan, Ryan Coogler, Spike Lee, John Singleton, so many different filmmakers that I gleaned from, that learned from. Like I watched the movies religiously to learn. So I watched movies multiple times, always try to find something new in that movie that I may have never seen before. Maybe there was a different shot that I had never noticed, or maybe the dialogue was presented in a different way than I, than I remember. I learned that is like what I call my study. So how I study mm. films, I just watch a lot of films, read a lot of screenplay. So it's those are filmmakers that I love to watch because those are the type of movies that I want to make based off of my favorite filmmakers. That's awesome. Your study is watching movies. I mean, how that that's amazing. That's amazing. The next question I have for you is because from an outside perspective, it looks as though this filmmaking process is like. It looks as though it's just all creativity. And I'm sure a lot of creativity is involved with that. Talk to me about the skill sets that are required. Is it, 
are you an artist? Are you an executive? Are you a manager? Are you all in one? Does it require, like, what's the mix of skill sets that's required to be a filmmaker? All of the above. You're an artist. You're an executive. They call it show business for a reason. So you got to do the show and the business part. You got to know both sides of the coin. And one side is more fun than the other, but the other side helps pay for the show part. So it's a lot of things that you have to do, a lot of things you can manage from being an artist, making sure your creativity and your vision is realized. The part of being a manager where you got to manage all these different departments, like I said, from the camera department to the lighting department to the sound department, to hair and makeup, to wardrobe, managing that. And then you're an executive in it, right? Because now you're the chief, not the chief seller of your film. You are the film. So when people are asking when you want to get distribution, how to sell the film, you're the person who's going to have to sell it because you know the film intimately and you know exactly how to present it to that person. So you got to sell it. So you also have to be good at sales. It's a lot of things you have to be good at. But it's fun. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything else in the world. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. And, and, and looking at your background, I see that you have a tech background. Talk to me about how the movie business has changed, how technology has influenced opportunity, has influenced networks, has influenced platforms in the last 5, 10, 15 years and how that affects the ability to actually be a movie maker. So making movies is a lot less expensive ordeal than it used to be, especially for an independent filmmaker. Because before, some of these cameras would cost $10,000, $12,000 for these normal cameras. So it was a gate, it was a financial gateway that a lot of people could not get into, especially like people of color couldn't get into the high price ranges for some of this equipment. So over the last five to 10 years, those prices have come down to where you can get a nice uh, film camera for like $3,000 with your movie. I don't know if you saw the movie that's called The Creator that's out with John David Washington and it was directed by Edwards. They used a camera on set that would only cost $3,000. Right. Was that the movie where they were just in the house the whole time? No, this is the one where it was about he was rescuing a robot child. The robot child was being hunted out by humans and other robots it's a good movie it's a really good sci-fi original film but it was shot on a three thousand dollar camp before that way you wouldn't be able to do things like that and then now because of the streaming platforms and the streaming wars that i like to call them you now have opportunity to get your film seen or put on distribution where before it was a very lock and key situation where you had to know somebody to get your film theaters you had to know somebody to get onto one of these type of platforms but because so many of these platforms are looking for content and original content at that it gives you opportunity you didn't have to, like 15 years ago you didn't have TV like that to where you have a lot of local independent filmmakers especially from Detroit who have their films on Tubi and people are watching them. Mm. like you had to struggle to get your, your scene then you also have YouTube you have Vimeo and you have the higher end streaming platforms like you know Netflix and Hulu and peacock and everything like that there's just so much more opportunity now because things because of technology things are a lot cheaper to make but like i said with it, like camera like camera is like one of the biggest things you have to buy from camera to the lenses that all determines how the film looks so because things are a lot more cheaper than what they used to be you have a lot more you have a lot of newer independent filmmakers out there creating for the first time and it's just it's an exciting thing to see absolutely and to piggyback on you talked about the idea of having more opportunity the tagline of this podcast is we believe if you can see it, you can be it. Talk to me about being a black filmmaker and your thought process on the importance of black filmmakers being able to tell stories, whether they may be specifically black stories or just from a, 
you know, an African-American, African-American perspective. Talk to me about the importance that you see with that, or, or, or is it important? As you like to say, seeing is believing, and that also taglines into representation matters, and it really mm. does. A specific example, I remember when uh, Black Panther came out in 2018, you know, it's first Marvel-led Black filmmaker, or Black film lead, and the excitement in the Black community that came out. We was up in there, boy. We was up in there. Honda Forever, we were doing all that because we were so excited to see us on the screen in a positive way that we could, you know, connect everything from Chadwick Boseman, you know, being the lead actors, you know. It was just such a great film on top of that. So not only did we get a great representation of us on screen, we got a lot of it. How many young Black men tried to start training themselves as the palace, seeing themselves as royalty, and being able to mm. see themselves in the character. So representation matters in that way. As a black filmmaker, because Ryan Coogler is a black man, he was able to direct that and put his own influences as the characters onto that film, which matters. Because not to say that a white filmmaker couldn't do it, they just don't have the same experience to be able to lend that type of credibility to a film like that. So that definitely does matter when sometimes when it comes to these black films, like you can tell if anybody on the film was black or not based off of something mm-hmm. that they say. Some of the clothes that they wear, hairstyles that they use, things like that. There's certain things that can tip your hand to who is actually working on this production. It's based off of, you know, there's some things that even with, because some back in the day, especially in the 90s, but they're still happening now when it comes to black hair in films, especially with black women, like they did not know how to do their hair. They put headbands on black women characters. Look at a watch TV show. If you see any black woman, particularly with a headband, that was because they did not know how to do it. So a lot of wow. black women had a set with their hair already done. So because if else, their the hairdressers wouldn't be able to do it, or they would put you know like a headband on their head in order for that to look you know presentable on camera. So things like that especially matter because you get to see yourself in an authentic way, something that you can connect with. It definitely doesn't matter. Representation matters. Seeing is believing. I mean, even when it comes, even when if you remember before Barack Obama became president, you had a slew of black presidents on TV and film. From like Morgan Freeman to um, yeah. David Palmer in 24 to D.B. Woodside also being the black president, you know, Chris Rock, head of state. You had all these mm-hmm. representations of black presidents for a good 10 years running up until Barack Obama became president. Because people could believe it because they could see it. And once you be able to mm-hmm. see it, you can actually envision that. You can actually envision yourself doing it as well. Wow. So wait a minute. I never heard, I never thought about it from that perspective. So you feel like the movie industry, you know, they talk about art imitating life and life imitating art. You feel like the movie industry kind of prepared America to have a black president by seeing these images on, on screen. Mm-hmm. I definitely believe wow. it helps because it's not unfamiliar at this point because mm. you're like 24 was a wildly popular TV show. It was one of the most watched shows of the 2000s and it, they had a lead, David Palmer, I can't remember his actual, the actor's name. He was a black president on 24. And for some people, that was the very first time they actually saw a black man as president. So then when wow. Barack Obama started running, it wasn't something unfamiliar because they've already seen it. And it's not a wild concept to them. They, oh, a black man can't become a president because I've never seen that before. And so it gave them permission to envision a black president would be in America. Wow. So let me piggyback on that. So obviously you, you highlighted the change leading up to Barack Obama since then. What are your thoughts? Where are we? Uh, it, it, are we where we need to be in the movie industry, in the TV industry, represent, representation-wise? Are we 
10% there? Are we 90% there? Is it a long way to go? You know, do you see that the playing field leveled now? What are your thoughts on that? So I wouldn't say it's level now. There have been a lot of aims within the last 10 to 15 years, the way you're able to see for representation from different types of films. Because they're starting to move away from just the all black films. Because there used to be the myth that black films couldn't sell overseas. Mm-hmm. That was one of the main myths. I never saw it black leads in films because if they wanted to get an international audience, they believed that they could not sell. Smith changed that narrative because he was able to be able, he was a global superstar. So people came to say these movies all over the world. So things like that help push us forward to dispel myths that black films don't sell overseas. That helps that out, helps level the playing field a little bit because now they, Hollywood sees that black films are profitable. And that's what's going to help turn things. The more black films are profitable, the more you'll see that Hollywood pivots towards that direction too because Hollywood follows the money. So wherever the money goes, they'll put that towards that so that way they can continue money because they're starting to see that films with diverse cast make more money than films that are just, you know, all white. So they're starting to see that. They're going to start changing that. There was a report that came out, I want to say a year or two ago, that Hollywood has left $10.4 billion on the ground because they did not have diverse cast. Wow. So if we go back to the Black Panther, the Black Panther in America is the third highest grossing film of all time in America. Like it made I did not know million, that. $700 million was made here in America alone. It made, I think, a little like $1.2 billion. But in total, it made its third highest. The only two movies above it, I believe, are, are Avatar and Star Wars The Force Awakens. Other than that, wow. $700 million. And, the, and to make it even worse, well, to make it better, it came out during February, where February in Hollywood, January and February are considered dead months in Hollywood. That's where they dump films because they don't have a lot of competition. And the films that they don't think are going to perform that well, they put them in those months so that way they can have less competition. They can make money off that film. So tend to see that you tend to see these films and not see during like the holiday season or during the summer blockbuster season because there's a lot of competition. A lot of families go to the movies during Thanksgiving or Christmas. Or during the summer, you have all these summer blockbusters. So there's a lot of competition in those months. So January, February, and sometimes March, you don't have a lot of movies coming that are like these big time movies. But Black Panther came out in February and cleaned up. Mm. Absolutely cleaned up. That's amazing. Robert, talk to me about narrative because I feel like, the, you know, we talked about the, the increase of black filmmakers and black content. But when I was growing up, if you saw black content, it was, you know, boys in the hood. It was, you know, it seems like a lot of our content and, you know, and I don't know if content producers have been felt like they put in a box, but it seems like it's very much about drug dealing, about violence, about the criminal element in the black community. You know, one of my, one of my motivations for creating this podcast was as a former football player played the NFL for a few years. I felt like the only content that I was able to see that celebrated us was oftentimes the athletes, the rappers, the, you know, the stereotypical part of what we do. Talk to me about your perspective on being a content creator, being true to yourself, while also recognizing that we do have this stigma as a black community that, you know, we can sing and dance and run and jump and sell drugs and, you know, all these kind of things. But we're oftentimes put in that box. What are your thoughts on that? All right, so going back to what we were talking about before about how like Hollywood all, would only fund two types of black films. 
is that they would find, you know, like the boys in the hood type, or they would find slavery movies because those were mm-hmm. only the they would see returns on when it came to the black films. So that's why they put their money towards what they knew they would get. They would get a return out of, or they they would be able to win awards from. Mm-hmm. So even though they may not have been positive representation, either a they made money from it, or b they got a claim from it. So either more was books they would prefer to make money but they were also able to say hey this film got nominated for 12 oscars even though it didn't make a whole lot of money they'll take that too because that adds to the next project things like that so positive narratives in the black community especially when it comes to tv and films have been increasing lately like even from shows like blackish and things mm-hmm. like that blackish grownish then you have all these i love kenya bears yeah you have all these black superhero shows from black lightning to Batwoman, to, you know, hopefully they get the Blade movie right, but we'll see how that's going on. <laughs> but you have all these representation of what it's like to be Black in the world. You're not just getting two different narratives. Now you're getting showing Black people to be superheroes. They can be, you know, astronauts. They can be doctors. They can be presidents. They can be literally anything. We're not stuck in a box anymore. And that's what these films are starting to represent, especially with the, all these new black filmmakers who are doing things like there's one black filmmaker named Matthew Cherry he came out with a animated short called Hair Love that won an Oscar a couple of years ago brilliant filmmaker uh, he also played in the NFL for a little bit uh, I don't know. a great guy he also believes in supporting black filmmakers and like that awesome guy but you got all these new black filmmakers coming up who are changing the narrative and pushing different narratives than like Hollywood is used to and because these new narratives are making money and have a wider audience it gives more chances to do this over and over absolutely man i i, I realized robert i could talk to you all day we could just keep i could keep asking you these movie questions so i love your feedback i love your insight let's change gears here a little bit i would love to talk about you personally not just the film industry talk to me about your early childhood influences your upbringing how you became who you were elementary middle school high school college I would love to hear about this making of a filmmaker. To be perfectly honest, it starts with my family. I come from two wonderful parents, my mom and my dad. My mom is very, she's more analytical. She's very, she's very analytical. My dad is highly creative. My dad is a piano player, music teacher. He's been playing piano since he was three years old. So a lot of my creativity derives from his side of the family. My grandmother, she's highly creative as well, but she's more creative when it comes to like, teaching and to cooking she's an amazing cook i love my grandmother's cooking it's just amazing mm. you know we talk about recipes all the time so we talk yeah about yeah great well so it comes from my family coming from my parents and how they nurtured me when i was a child even seeing you know shy like they took interest in what i was interested in and they mm. pushed me in that direction and if i wasn't interested anymore they're like okay are you not interested anymore or is it just because it got hard so they didn't mm. let me give up as easily either so it was, it was like it comes directly from my parents grandparents my grandparents on my parents on my mom's side amazing people they nurtured my filmmaking things like my very first actress i ever did in a film was my grandmother my grandmother oh wow so we made i had a cooking show i had called a cooking show with grandma that's what we call my grandmother and we made chocolate chip cookies she was my very first actress so she held on to that thing for years one day you put your films out i'm gonna show this to everybody this was your first film to your first wow so it was amazing that just, and I have two brothers. I have an older brother and younger brother. I'm the middle child. My oldest brother, he's highly creative. He used to draw a lot. He used to write plays and things like that. And so he was honestly my first creative foundation. So I just wanted to be like my big brother. So I would follow him. 
he did. He took acting classes. I took acting classes. When he did plays. I did plays. When he did background acting for movies. I did it as well because I just wanted to do what my big brother did. So those, you know, some of the early influences growing up were, you know, my fan. And my first feature film is, I want to say, I want to say it's semi-autobiographical, but it, it's pretty close. A lot of things that happened in my life went into that film because a great filmmaker, John Hughes, once said, write what you know. Mm. Pull from what you know, what you experience, and that makes it a more full experience when you're writing on a so that's one of the things I, I derive from is my own life, my family. My family is very, means a lot to me. I love my family dearly. And that's what grew me up from being in, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, throughout that whole thing was my family. what got me through it, what pushed me towards doing films and things like that. So elementary school, I lived in Georgia for the most part. I lived in Georgia from basically... First grade, no, kindergarten all the way to about eighth grade. So I grew up in the South. Well, I've been in the South, played sports. I love sports. You know, I, in um, middle school and high school, I played football. I played baseball growing up, played basketball. But I love sports in general. So it's being a well-rounded, you know, individual helped out a lot as well. Because I, from playing sports to doing music, because like I said, my dad is a, was a music teacher. So playing an instrument growing up was a requirement. It was not. Wow, not something that was a uh, uh, a choice. You didn't have a choice. Yeah, you had to play an instrument growing up. So my instrument yeah. choice, the trumpet. I love the trumpet. I love playing the yeah. I just love mm-hmm. the sound of it. And so when we got the chance to pick our instrument in fourth grade, I played the trumpet because that was I, I just wanted to be a trumpet player. So that's we yeah, went from fourth grade all the way to high school and some in college on the trumpet. I have not touched it in years though. But I still love the sound. Like, you only come to my music scores. I always talk with the boats. Like, we got to find some way to put some horns in the score. I don't care where it is. Mm-hmm. You got to do it because that's something growing up. I love the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, you know, growing up was interesting. Uh, then when I get to high school, we moved up to Michigan because my dad's family was from Atlanta to Michigan. So we came mm-hmm. back home. And then, I um, mean, you know, I went to high school. And like I so said, I went to high school in Michigan and to college in Oklahoma, a long mm-hmm. place. Because I graduated at 17. I wanted to go to USC. My parents were like, you were not seeing a 17-year-old child out to LA by himself. Yeah. <laughs> so Eric, okay, well, let's look at everything else. So it was like I ended up going to the same college as my older brother and also Emmanuel. Emmanuel and I went to the same college as well. Oh wow, so, okay. Okay. That's how I met him. Now, did you want to go to USC because of the film school? Isn't that where George Lucas went? Correct. That is correct. That's exactly where you went. That's why I wanted to go to film school because George Lucas went there, a whole bunch of other great filmmakers. I was like, well, if I want to be a filmmaker, I should go to film school, and USC has one of the best programs in the world. Mm-hmm. So I got a question for you. At what point in time in that development, elementary, middle school, high school, or college, at what point did you feel like or someone tell you like, you know what, Robert, you, you got some talent here. Like, I think that you could, I think that you could really run with this filmmaking and creativity thing. Do you remember who that person was or when that was, when that moment sparked? I would say it was in high school because we had a TV and film program in high school and my teacher, Mr. Lucci, it was just, I, (laughs) I made that man's life. I don't want to say a living hell, but I made it interesting for him because I was always trying to push things in as much push things to the limit as much as possible 
So we just got these brand new cameras, things like that. And he specifically warned me, he said, don't do anything to mess up these new cameras. And what did I do? I did exactly that. So we had to do a new video for our morning announcements. So I came up with the idea saying that, you know, we were at a cafeteria and that we were late and we had to rush the, the TV room in order to do the announcement. So it's just a video of us rushing. Very last shot, it's a guy diving for the door, catching the door before it closes. And so what we did is I put a camera on the ground and he slid all the way to the door and hit the camera. And, you know, my teacher was like, what are you doing? I said, but I got the shot, though. He said, what are you doing? I got the shot, though. I got the shot. What do you have the shot? It's like, we review the footage. He goes, All right, you got the shot. I said, Exactly. And the camera's fine. We had to do something a little bit risky to get the shot. But he was one of the, like I said, he was pushing towards film more because he even went one of the film schools that, you know, that I wanted to go to. He brought a great recommendation. They came up to meet me, things like that. So he was on Lucci, but very instrumental. Shout out, Mr. Lucci. Yeah, yes, yes. What was the I know your first your first project was Grandma in the cooking show with Grandma. After were, were you doing were you doing kind of small projects or anything when you were in college uh, shooting, you know, for classes or anything? Yes and no. So in college we before she was really big, a lot of me and my friends we did a lot of skits. Mm. So we just get based off of our experiences. We had something called uh, name of our floor, each of our floors were named something different. So our floor was Michael Seven. We were called Lifeguard. So we did all these skits, and one of them was called Lifeguard Dating Service. So basically, took all these stereotypes of guys at our schools, put that into a video, and it got wildly popular. So we would do sketches and skits. So kind of like how you see on TikTok now, you see all these sketches like that. We were that back in 2007, 2000. And so we were putting them online because people on campus thought they were funny. We did things from like that. We did a we did music as well. We did a, we were in a hip hop R&B group as well that we did back in then. So we did a lot of videos and sketches just to make people laugh and you know to make sure we weren't doing anything stupid to get in trouble at college. But then also there was a specialized film program at my school that I got into my junior year. And then that's when it became a little bit more focused in college about where you want to go, what you want to do with your life. And that's when we did a lot of videos and programs. And so one of the one of the classes that we had was a marketing class. We had to come with a marketing plan for a nonprofit organization, which included like uh, how to do a fundraiser, how to do like videos for fundraisers. So we had to create a video that I remember specifically. It was about it's called the Taliban Boys. They were West Africa and these boys basically were, you know, street beggars on the street for asking for money while trying to avoid child soldiers, things like that. And we raised for this organization. Their goal was fifteen thousand dollars for the whole campaign. Based off of our work in that BO, they made fifteen thousand dollars on one night. Wow. So and since it was things that that gave made us more target filmmakers and storytellers once my junior year hit. Wow. Did that moment, did that give you like a realization like, wow, this medium of filmmaking, how like this can be very impactful, like you can use it in a positive way. Did, did that affect you in any kind of way when you were able to make such a big difference with your with your art? Yeah, it was it was an amazing feeling because we weren't we weren't being rated on how much money we raised during that fundraiser. It was just based off the work that we did of when we were able to impact. So I remember when we played the video. 
because I remember working on this video. It was just me and two actors working. And we, it was a lot of hard work and it was difficult. We had to do things on the fly because we were a college students. So we didn't have a lot of money. And yeah. I remember watching the video and it was just like dead silent in, in the fun rooms. Mm. Everybody was, you know, the edge of your seat type of silence where nobody was mm. could barely hear anybody breathing. And then at one point you could hear somebody cry. So it was like once wow. once I got up, you know, I'm like, wow, this is, you know, this is the first time I could say something that I made impacted somebody so greatly. The fact mm -hmm. that, you know, like I said, the fundraiser was supposed to be fifteen thousand dollars over like three months and they were still one day. Wow. One one night. In like two hours they were able to raise that money. It was an wow. amazing, amazing feeling. Well, and I and I know that art is uh subjective and it can't necessarily be quantified or rated in a specific way. But my personal feeling is that filmmakers are the ultimate artists because you guys have everything in one music and pictures and uh, video and dialogue and all of these different things weaving into the storytelling. Talk to me about the need to be, because it seems like you almost have to be a musician, but you also have to be a storyteller, but you also have to have an eye for uh, pictures and arts and angles. We're back to talking about movies again. I, you just get me so excited. Talk to me about the the intermingling of all of these different art forms all into one. So you don't honestly have to be all those like you described, but you have to have a vision. When you have a vision, it attracts the right people. So you may not be the greatest at capturing images on the screen, but that's why you have a director of photography who can talk to mm. you, talk to them about their vision. They can capture that vision. You may not be the best at music, but you have a composer who has that ear, and once you tell them your vision for the score, and go out and make it. So it's all about having vision. Once you have a singular vision, you can go out and find the people and connect that vision that make the project better. So you don't necessarily have to do everything so. Now, some filmmakers do because they don't have a lot of money and they have to do that out of necessity. But if when you don't have to do it out of necessity, you can just connect people to your vision. And once they connect, then you can get the right people towards your project. You don't always have to do everything yourself, which is something I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So talk to me about, you know, being a black filmmaker. One of the one of the purposes of this podcast is we wanted to sh uh, show visuals of African-Americans doing incredible things like yourself. And, and, and also kind of dispel the myth that we can't do certain things and, and also support imagery that we can do certain things. But talk to me about the unique challenges that you faced as a filmmaker, as a black man, as a black filmmaker, um, and, and how you've overcome uh, those challenges, whether it may be people not believing in your vision or counting you out or, you know, prejudging your talent or ability or your process. So I can speak to a couple examples just from memory, especially when it came to my first feature film. We entered the script before we started shooting into like a screenplay contest. And so it made it to like the final round. Final round of judges didn't like whoop or didn't like the script because it was what they called it was atypical. They called it atypical because you saw like and for the type of story we were telling, you get a lot of white stories, but you don't get a lot of black stories. So it's different because it's from a different perspective, a different view. They didn't see it that way. They read it out as the characters were just white characters. Mm. So because that was their frame of mind method, we didn't get, you know, we didn't make the pass. We didn't win the script. But before that, everybody loved the script. It was great. And then we get to the final round. I was like, eh, we've seen this before. A lot of black audiences have not seen those type of films because they weren't being mm. 
So it was more like that. And also it's just more of, you know, like so there's things you robots you have to overcome as a black filmmaker, especially when you want to do black leads. Well, we like say you're doing a romantic comedy. Most times they don't want two black leads. They will they'll do like a black male and a white woman, or a black male and a Latino woman. Or if it's a black woman, then it will be a white lead. They don't like doing two black leads in those types of films because they believe that it automatically becomes a black film and you're limiting your audience. Mm. And so there's things like that because there's the romantic comedy we're working on now. I was offered a good deal of money to sell it to a studio about three years ago. They wanted to make the leads white, and I would not mm-hmm. sell it for that purpose. So I was like, ah, no, I mean, that's cool. They tossed a little bit more cash in me. I'm like, nah, that's good. I, I want, I need to have the leads to be black because we don't get those types of stories. We don't get rom-coms like that for black leads like that. So I wanted to create something for that positive imagery that, you know, black people can be in love. Black people can do this. Black people can do that. And show that it's possible for black people. Because black this people representation matters. Absolutely. And to piggyback off of what you just said, do you make movies with ulterior motives? And, and here's what I mean by that. I understand that you're an artist and you have a vision and you want to bring that vision to life. But are there ever times when you're developing a character or you're coming up with an idea, you're like, I don't want to portray this person in this way because then people are gonna is is perpetuating a stereotype. Or do you are you just do you go in there with a blank slate like the art and the process is gonna drive me? I'm not necessarily you're not necessarily thinking about how people will perceive that and is it reinforcing stereotypes or what are your thoughts on that? For me, it's all about what the story dictates. So it I don't really go into a story with. I can't portray somebody like this because it looks bad on them or can't portray somebody like that because it will do a negative. It's all about what the story dictates. If the story requires something like that and it services the story, I'll put it in there because it makes the story better. Um, I'm always looking at what makes the story better, what makes the story clicks with an audience. If it doesn't click, then I remove certain things, but it's all about what the story requires. That's my philosophy when it comes to it. I don't tend to do things with ulterior motives, although some people may say that, but it's not how I go about my creative process. It's all about what the story means. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I want to change gears. I I want to kind of, we're going to kind of roll, but let's say I'm, a, I'm an aspiring filmmaker and I want to kind of walk down the path that you have. Uh, first question I have is, are there any books or any kind of resources, videos, movies, what should I be listening to? What should I be reading? What should I be doing if I'm an aspiring filmmaker? If I want to also follow in your footsteps and develop this, the skills, do I need to go to film school? Do I need to go to college and get the degree? Well, what are your thoughts on that? So I wouldn't say you need to go to film school per se, because there's a wealth of resources online that you can learn filmmaking from. There's stuff even as a filmmaker now that I go to YouTube and watch just to learn from other filmmakers. Like there's one page on YouTube in particular. I like it's called Essence from the Screenplay. So it's basically a screenwriter breaking down certain scenes or certain themes of movies and breaking it down for you to understand. Now, they always say that there is a book that every filmmaker should read or screenplay writer should read. It's called Story by Robert McKee, which breaks down all of the, the writing fundamentals when it comes to screenplays. Um, I would always say, though, it's hard to say that now because of student loan debt, going to college, I always need a great foundation. Um, but, you know, way student loan debts and stuff, just stuff. I'm like, uh, 
yeah, it's, it's hard to recommend going to college, but you know, I can't say going to college did not help me. It helped me with my thought process, connect me to the right people and help me grow to where I want to go. But that's not everybody's path. And I can't just say the one thing you need to go to film school to be a filmmaker, because there are a lot of films, filmmakers who did not go to film school. Uh, they learned on the job or they learned by doing it on their own. And those are all some paths that you can take. Film school does end up giving you connections to certain individuals that you may not have if you don't go to film school. So I know a couple of people who went to film school and they connected with studio executives who you would never have been able to connect to because they make those connections at film school, working in mm-hmm. certain projects, things like that. So uh, everybody's path is different. But what great thing about today is, is there's so much well knowledge on YouTube, on Vimeo, on all these different websites that you can grab that you can learn how to light your light a picture to frame something properly on how to write a compelling protagonist or a compelling villain or how to score a film. There's so many different resources out there that you go on YouTube and find that can teach you how to be a filmmaker. And then I, the only other thing I would say is watch, watch your favorite movie critically and write down why you like that movie. If you can change something about that, what would you do to change that movie? And, you know, then go out and try to do that. So, like I said, learning all the job experience is the greatest teacher. So, learning how to do your own film, like it, it may not be perfect, but you can learn the process of learning the process an important step. Once you learn the process, things are going to get easier as you get more. That's awesome. Man, that's some great advice. That's some great advice. Talk to me about okay, I want to be a filmmaker. What are the foundational habits that I need to develop to be a filmmaker? Do I need to be a voracious reader? Do I need to? Uh, watch film, uh, watch movies all the time and digest them and break them down? Like, what are some of the things that you feel like is a commonality of success for a filmmaker or, or is there no commonality of success and it just kind of all over the place? From what I, like for me, I am a voracious reader. I read a lot. I read as much as possible from historical documents, books and articles, things like that, things that interest me. Uh, from, I, I'm a huge history buff. I love reading about history from things that I was not allowed to experience. So I definitely like write reading things about that because I like to see how we got to where we are as, mm. a, as a people, as a nation, as a global community. So I love you. I consume I consume a lot of articles and books and things like that. I for things that it's a hard question because there's no set path thing that you need to do. I think all filmmakers they do they do watch a lot of films. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, one commonality I know with a lot of filmmakers they watch a lot of films and they don't just watch one genre they watch all. They watch things from sci-fi to drama to romantic comedies to action to horror. So they watch everything to get a well-rounded picture of the filmmaking experience and as a filmmaker. So there's one thing I can say I know about all filmmakers and people that I talk to is that we watch a lot of. And we watch it differently than everybody else. We watch the shots. We watch the lighting. We watch the editing. We watch the pacing of the film. We, watch, we listen to the score. We listen to the sound effects. I would say, uh, like I went back to the last question, is pick your favorite movie and break it down. Why do you like it? What did you like about the characters? What did you like about the story? What did you like about the lighting, the shot selection? Did you think the movie was too slow? Did you think the movie was too fast? the right pace did you that you know the movie was too long did you do you think that the movie could be you could share 20 minutes off the movie and it could still be a great movie 
If so, what 20 minutes would you shave off to make this movie shorter to make it better? Or would you extend certain scenes to make things better because things weren't explained as well as they could be? So it's just, there's these things that you can do, but I think the commonality is watching films. Absolutely. So basically almost deconstructing the film and kind of reverse engineering it in a way. Mm -hmm. I would say so, yeah. I know a lot of filmmakers do that. Even, even when I talk to my director of photography, I'm sorry, projects, we will say, hey, I need you to watch this film. And then I need mm -hmm. you to look at this shot, this shot, and let's mm -hmm. talk about it. Talk about why. So we we talk in film <laughs> to other filmmakers about what we're trying to do for something. So yeah. it's like we use that as examples, as a, almost like a board or look board for your team. Say, hey, I really like this shot at 10 minutes and 52 seconds and 24 frames here at this movie. And this is what I'm envisioning for this scene. So things like that. Awesome. Awesome. So Envision you're talking to your younger self, the young, the 18-year-old, the 17-year-old, fresh out of high school, Robert. What advice, knowing, learning what you learned over the last, I don't know. I don't know exactly how old you are. I, I'm older than you. It's hard. I turned 34 yesterday. I just turned 34 yesterday. Man, made me feel old. 34. So <laughs> over these 17 years of your life, what advice would you give the 17-year-old, starry-eyed, you know, bushy-tailed Robert Butler, who's headed off to college, who has this dream of being this filmmaker, what advice would you give him? Ooh. Let me think about that. What advice would I give my 17-year-old self? Number one, just because you're gifted in something doesn't mean you're not going to have to work hard to achieve what you want. Mm. Uh, just because you have talent in something does that mean that you don't have to put the work to make yourself better? Because there are a lot of talented people out there who don't work hard and they missed out on things that they should have had. So remember to continue your talent, put the hard work will get you places that all the people with talent could not get. You have a God-given gift, the wisely use it well, use it to help people. And you know, life is Life hard. Life does not get easier, but it can get better. And you surround yourself with the right people and makes life that much better. But just keep going. Don't quit. You're gonna have a lot of challenges of things that you never would have thought would have happened to you at that young age. But just remember, don't quit. Don't give up. Just keep pushing through. You got this. Yeah. Wow. That is that is awesome. Man, you got you dropped so many, so many receipts today, so many nuggets. I appreciate are you sharing? I'm wrapping up here, Robert. We got a, a few more questions. Okay. First question is a success. What means success for us at this podcast is to be able to, again, show these visuals of black excellence, but also to be able to pair the people who are living that vision with those who aspire to live that vision. And so my question to you is, are you currently mentoring anybody who also would like to become a filmmaker? And if not, are you open to doing so? I love talking to young filmmakers. I am mentoring at least two young men right now in film. We talk about film a lot. I am always been talking to other filmmakers because I believe that is my duty to open the doors for the other other filmmakers behind and keep that door open so more people can walk through that path and just make it easier for them because somebody may be easier for me. So I, my goal is to make it easier for other filmmakers coming behind me to create their art without going through exactly all struggles that I went through. So that I didn't know. 
is extremely important. That's amazing. That's amazing. So if someone were to reach out to us who saw this interview and they're like, man, Robert Butler, that was amazing. Love the episode. I would love to be able to ask him a few questions. Is it okay if we, you know, direct them, give them your email? Sure. Sure. Awesome. Absolutely. Awesome. I'd love to answer questions and help out with that too. Awesome. So the last question I have is, where can people find you? Obviously, you're making this amazing content. Give us your socials, your website. How can people connect to what you're doing and the incredible art that you're creating? So I believe in brand synergy. So anywhere that you see Bruising 2345, that's where you should find me on socials from Twitter, Instagram. I believe my Facebook URL is now Bruising 2345, things like that. You should be able to find me under my socials there to find my content where it comes to films, my feature film, my thing like movies is on Tubi, YouTube, Amazon Prime, Roku, and a couple other places. And now my short films are on YouTube. So if you look up my short films by name and type in my name after me, you'll find my short film on YouTube and the rest of my content that, that we didn't talk about in my bio. But yeah, find me anywhere on Soldiers at Breezy 235. You should be able to find and keep up with Awesome. We're going to add your socials in the bio and we're going to add all the links uh, to those films, uh, those films as well. Robert, awesome. brother, I just want to thank you for taking time to speak to us today. This was, this was fun. This is the funniest thing I'm going to do today. I really <laughs> enjoyed talking to you. I'm a movie buff. I love movies. I got the utmost respect for film filmmakers. I really believe that what you're doing matters. It's making a difference in the black community and just, you know, in our country as a whole. And so, Thank you for making the incredible content. Thank you for showing representation on screen. And I wish you much success as you continue to do what you're doing. I appreciate it. It was great to be here. I love talking about film and I love talking about how we can empower the next generation to do what we want, what them to do and help them go further, faster, fire, higher. So uh, I love that. I love talking about this stuff. Absolutely. So thank you for your time, brother.